going to be in 1 Corinthians 9. If you want to open your Bible to 1 Corinthians 9, we'll be there most of the morning. We've been walking through 1 Corinthians, and we've been in it for a while, so if you're joining us for the first time, you're joining us in the midst of an argument uh, that Paul's making, and I, I thought I'd start with uh, a thought about what is true. How do we know something's true? Or how do we know when we truly know it? Uh, just this, this past week, just the other day, I was sitting at lunch with my kids, and one of them said to me, Dad, have you heard of the Bloop Monster? That's a B-L-O-O-P Monster. And I said, no, I, I have not heard of this bloop monster. And they said, well, this this monster, this big sea monster in the deep ocean. And I said, really? Where did you hear of this bloop monster? Well, the internet. <laughs> Apparently on the internet, there's this, there is some truth to this, Okay there was a sound recorded by scientists uh, in the water. It was a deep sound that sounded like bloop, okay? But a deep, monstery bloop, okay? And they did not initially know what it was. However, from that point on, uh, somehow someone figured out how to draw this monster, based upon the sound. Uh, There's the sound bloop, that's what the monster must look like. So one of my kids was telling me how big its fins are and how long it was. And turns out it was the sound of an ice shell falling off of Antarctica into the water that goes bloop. Um, Now, it started off as real knowledge and then it went somewhere, right? It was, there was real knowledge, something real at work, and I think, and I understand, uh, because I think some, some part in many of us, like myself, where while I do not want to be eaten by a sea monster, I do wish there was a world with a sea monster. You know, I think most of us sort of like the notion of a monster somewhere. Uh, makes life funner. Um, so I can understand how you might start with the sound, a, a scientific recorded sound of bloop and maybe end up with a monster. But you, I, what I want you to see is what started out as knowledge ended up as imaginary, just by the way it was handled. And that matters today because today we're going to be, in the Word, Paul is going to be dealing with how people handle the truth. And there's a way where you, when you rightly handle the truth, it begets more truth. It, it leads you in the path of truth. But there's a way that if, you, if and when we mishandle truth, we actually end up living in the midst of untruth. And that's what we're going to look at today. Let me give you a little bit of background. The subject or the problem that we're in the midst of is an issue that the church wrote Paul about, which is this. What about food offered to idols? There's food that in in this practice, in this time, it was common that 
much of the food in the marketplace might have been offered to idols or one of the places you might go eat is in the shadow of some other idolatrous temple. And the question among the believers is, are we or are we not allowed to eat this food that is offered to idols? And the fellowship was divided on the subject. There were some who had knowledge. They knew some part of the truth, which was an idol is nothing. An idol is nothing but a piece of wood or stone. God alone is God. So why would it matter what you eat? It's not, that idol isn't actually a real thing, okay? Or this other piece of knowledge, which is, they knew that it's not what goes, it's not what's outside and goes in you that matters, it's what's inside of us and comes out that matters, right? So meat is not going to make a person unclean or clean. So this obviously can't matter. So you have this side of the church that says, well, this is a non-issue. Of course we can eat meat sacrificed to idols. On the other side, you have people whose faiths are being uh, roadblocked or they're stumbling because of this practice. Is it, they don't understand. They don't understand the intricacies, and so they're stumbling in their faith, watching other people eating food, sacrificed to idols. And that's sort of the, the basic problem. How do we order these truth statements to live in a godly way? That's the question. Well, before we get into the ninth chapter, I'm going to ask you to return to chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, where this whole question starts. And we're going to grab a, a really important concept that's here, and then we'll carry it back with us into the ninth chapter. Let me read the first verse of chapter 8. He says, Now concerning food offered to idols, that's the issue, he says, We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. So Paul says about this issue, he says, We know that and then in my Bible, I have quotation marks. All of us possess knowledge. Okay, those were added by the translators. That means what we think, because Greek doesn't have quotes, what we think is, is that this is a slogan or a phrase that Paul's repeating. So he's maybe calling something out in the fellowship, like something they say, like, hey, we have the knowledge on this subject. The, the subject's clear. We all possess the knowledge of this subject. And he says, so we all know we have knowledge. But then he says, but this knowledge, notice the this there, it's not just saying knowledge in general puffs up. What he's saying is, is the particular kind of way that you're holding this knowledge ends up puffing up. As opposed to love, which builds up. It's He's assuming you can sort of make the, the mental, rational leaps here. He's putting this kind of knowledge that's at work in them uh, alongside and against love. So he says this kind of knowledge that you have results in you being pridefully puffed up as opposed to genuine love for someone else which would have built them up. That's what's wrong with this kind of knowledge. It's destructive. It works in contrast to love. And he goes on to develop this thought. 
Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not know it, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Okay? It's kind of a, a little mind, mind spin there, actually. He says, he's talking about this knowledge again. He's saying, if you imagine that you know it, now just think of that phrase, if you imagine that you know it. I, part of me says, well, I don't imagine that I know it. I know that I know it. Okay? So he's already playing with them. He's saying, if, if this is the kind of way that you're handling the knowledge, okay? If, if the knowledge you have results in you being puffed up, he says, then you, this is what he's saying, you don't really know it. You only imagine that you know it. But you don't know it as you ought to know it. You misknow it. Those of you who are so confident on the things you know, he says you actually don't know any of it because you don't know it as you should have known it. And he follows it with verse 3. But if anyone loves God, he's known by God. Again, it's another mind, mind bender, especially among a people who, know, who are all about the knowledge. Listen, we have the knowledge. We know we're free in Jesus. We know an idol's nothing. We know the food that doesn't come in, that food on the outside doesn't make me dirty on the inside. We know these things. We know, we know, we know. He says, you only imagine that you know because you're putting all of this knowledge up in such a way that's puffing you up and making your brother stumble, which means you don't actually know it because love would have built up. The knowledge you have is imaginary knowledge. And he comes in verse 3 to say, in fact, here's a more important concept. He who loves God is known by him. Now, if you just look in those three verses, the word knowledge or know or knowing show up a whole bunch of times. I mean, it's quite a poetic little set of sentences here about knowledge. And Paul ends up at the very end sort of saying, it's not really what, what you know or how much you know, it's are you known by God that sets your life in order. Here's the thought. Your life is not well-ordered by virtue of the things that you happen to know, especially spiritual things. That by itself does not order your life. Love orders the knowledge in your life. That's what places things in order. If you loved others, then the things you know would be, be rightly arranged in your life so that you would do things in the right way. If you loved God, then the things that you knew in life would be right, you would know them as you ought to know them. But as it is, I'm going to use this phrase. You have a, we have sometimes imaginary knowledge. Things we think we know, but because we're not salted, with, we're not, not settled in an environment of love, we don't really know them. We imagine we know them. Here's another way that Paul says it. In the 12th chapter, the very last phrase of the 12th chapter, 1 Corinthians says, I will show you still a more excellent way. And then the 13th chapter begins with this. If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Do you hear the principle? The very same principle is at work in this statement. It's not what you know. It's not how eloquent you are. It's not your talents. It's not your gifts. It's not your abilities. All of those things, if not ordered by love, are disordered and are worthless. 
Verse two, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If love is not commanding the order, what you know is worthless. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, chapter 8, verse 1, 2, and 3, he's starting this idea. Its idea is carrying through. This is why we're starting here. It's carrying through 9, 10, 11, 12, and all the way into 13. So as we come back to the ninth chapter, and as Paul begins to speak about himself, I want us to hear or to imagine this, this is the deep issue that he's ministering to, is to people who think they know things about the Lord, but because they don't love one another, their lives are out of order. So let's go back to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 19, is where we're going to pick up. So all of chapter 8, Paul sort of argued the issue of food sacrifice idols. He sort of gave out the argument. And then chapter 9, verses 1 through 18, he sort of began to place himself in front of them, saying, hey, there's a lot of things about me that you know, but I've never taken advantage of them. He says, I was an apostle, you know that? I preached the gospel. I served you in all of these ways. Isn't it customary that you provide food and shelter and housing for those ministers who care for you? Don't all the other apostles warrant this? He's putting things out in front of them to say, hey, there's a lot of things that you know about me that I have not enforced among you. Why is that? If it was just knowing the truth, why didn't I apply the truth the way you would have expected? And in the 19th verse, we're going to pick up with sort of a, a twist on this idea. Let me read verse 19. Paul says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Now the phrase, I'm free from all, you might imagine that would be the sort of statement, a truth statement in this congregation. That's right, Paul, you're free. Like, can I eat food sacrificed to idols? I'm free. Who cares if my brother stumbles about it? He just doesn't understand the truth. But I, I understand the truth. Aren't I free? And so Paul's sort of playing into these themes. He says, well, here's a truth statement. I know I'm free, but in my freedom, I make myself a slave. I know the truth statement, and yet I make myself a slave. Now, I am free in Christ. Is that, is that real truth or is that imaginary truth? I suppose it matters what fruit it bears. This is the question. If you said, well, I'm free in Jesus Christ, you don't have to tell me what to do. Are you being puffed up or are you building up? if you sort of had a you-can't-fire-me-I-quit attitude about this subject, right? Does that puff up or does that build up? As opposed to Paul's attitude, which is, I, 
am freeing Christ, and therefore in my freedom, I am laying my life down to be the servant of others. Does that puff up or does that build up? Enslaving himself to win others. Think about this. This is, this is, I think, a transformational concept that knowledge in the kingdom, the knowledge of the truth is judged by the fruit it bears. How you, what you know about God, what you know in your faith, what you know in your Christian walk, the litmus test of that is as well, How's that working out? Are you, over time, building a stronghold of defense for yourself? Right? Are you using it so you can be puffed up? Or are you finding that it's, it's being used in your life in order to build others up? Is it ordered beneath the love of God in such a way that it has, it, when it comes alive, it bears good fruit? It's not so much, is something true? It's where does it live in you? How is it ordered in your life? Let's watch this play out. So I'm going to read 20 through 22. I'm going to stop and go and stop and go. But I think he's, with repetition, he's building this idea. So look at verse 20. To the Jews... I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. You can just totally imagine that church, when he says, to the Jews, I became a Jew, and to those under the law, I became as one under the law, them saying, well, Paul, don't you know that you're free in Christ and that we're not under the law? I mean, there's again, the parenthetical is, is sort of a sidebar. Paul's saying, I know I know that I'm not actually under the law. I know it. I freely did it. Verse 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. This is a funny, this is actually a careful play in the Greek. It sounds like, this is why he has to qualify it. It sounds like, to those outside the law, in the Greek, I became an outlaw. <laughs> like, to those without the law, I became lawless. And he's saying, well, no, 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 no. well, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying to those outside the law, I became an outlaw. I'm saying, to those outside the law, mindful that I was still beneath the Lord, I lived as one who was outside the law in sensitivity to their spirit. Never leaving God, not running away from God. I wasn't an outlaw from God. I was outside of the law for them so that I might win them to God. Twenty-two, to the weak I became weak that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that I might by all means I might save some. To the weak I became weak. You just hear them go, well, Paul, don't you know you're an apostle? You're not weak. You're a a most prominent citizen in the kingdom of God. I I know what I am. My kids, their grandmother, 
used to play this game with them called Sorry. It's a board game, Sorry. It's the cruelest board game ever invented. I am convinced it was invented by the Soviets during the Cold War to destroy America. It's a satanic board game because the whole objective of the board game is to do something snarky and jerky to, your, to the other person playing and then you get to say, sorry. You don't actually say you're sorry, like, oh, I'm sorry. If you did, you wouldn't have done it. The point of the game is to be a jerk and then, get, and then you get to say, sorry. Okay, that's the point of the game. Nonetheless, my children's grandmother played it with them. Strange choice of board games. But what was interesting is, in classic grandma style, the chance to knock them off the board would arrive, but would she? No, she'd go around them. I mean, you might as well rename the game with her, like, excuse me. <laughs> right? She'd just go right around them, like, Good luck, good luck in your effort to win this game. Here, let me put my piece in front of yours so that you can knock me. I know, you're sorry, right? I mean, she would sort of reverse cheat in the game. Now, I said, don't you know the rules you could say to her? Don't you actually know the rules? Don't you know that you're more intelligent in your development of life than they are? This is a great time. Don't you know strategically you have every advantage you would want in this game? Don't you know that you're supposed to? Don't you know? Don't you know? Don't you know? What, did she do something wrong? Just this past week I was at dinner and there was a, like a, a young four-year-old boy, about four years old, he wanted to arm wrestle me. Okay, now, uh, there's bigger people than me, but I size up well against a four-year-old. <laughs> so I went righty on him. I'm a lefty, but I went righty on him. And comes time to go, what do you think I did? Do you think I... Mm, and then mm, talk, talk all this trash over his little suffering carcass? Is that what you think I did? <laughs> no. No, I was 0 for 3. I was 0 for 3. And like... Anyone should be, each iteration was a little harder for him, a little more nervous, right? But I was 0 for 3. He won three times. Now, wait a second. Don't you know that I'm stronger? Don't you know that his muscles haven't developed? Don't you know that that was an unwise choice? Don't you know he picked a fight? Don't you know? Why did I lose? Why? Why in those natural settings? Why do we do, why do we subordinate what we know? You would say, well, it's because you love them. I'd say, that's exactly the point. That's what Paul's saying. Don't you know that knowledge like that puffs up, but love builds up? Just think of the things you do in the most tender, natural settings. Those things which you do in those settings, the Holy Spirit wants you to do in all settings. Paul is freely laying his life down, enslaving himself to people he has not yet met so that they might, he might win them to the Lord. He's doing all sorts of, don't you know, Paul, you don't need to do, you don't need to do that, you don't need to do that. He's, he's prostrating and subordinating and condescending himself, all sorts of negative low words you want to invent and make. He's doing all of those things despite what he knows because love builds up. 
It's not what you know. It's where it lives in your life. It's how it lives in your life. It's how it's ordered in your life. It's the volume it has and the truths that are right above it and right below it because the fact of the matter is is that knowledge, just knowledge for its own sake, knowledge for your sake most of all pops up. But love builds up. And this is what Paul's saying. He's saying, look at my life. I was free, but I lived as I was a slave. In whatever setting, in whatever setting I came in, I would rack my brain and rack my soul thinking, what is the manner in which I might live that would be most effective in this setting so that some might come in some way to know the God that I know? What I want you to do is I want you to think in your life of those areas things in your life, okay, and use other people. Start with the people closest to you, wives, loved ones, close friends. I want you to think of those places where you know there's an injustice that's been done to you. You know that there was a sin that they committed. You know that you're not getting what you deserve. You know, right, and I, it's not that hard to make a list. If you're anything at all like me, of things that I know, that I know I have come to me if other people were as they should be, okay? Now, you get that little list. Now, I wanna, I'm gonna give you a, a bonus here. I want you, for the purposes of this argument, to assume that what you think you know is actually correct, okay? That you actually see it accurately and clairvoyantly and clearly. So the thing that you, that you think, you think there's an injustice? I'm saying for this exercise, let's assume you're exactly right. There was a terrible injustice done against you. That was actually a sin that that person committed. What do you do with it? Because that kind of knowledge, you're just going to use it to puff yourself up? Because the truth of the matter is, is love builds up. And if you hold on to things like that, you think you, think you have something real because, it's, oh, you know it and it's true. But Paul, Paul's saying, listen, it may be true, but the way you're handling it makes it imaginary. It amounts to nothing. It does nothing. Here's a question. So I, I don't want to just give you a problem like this. Like, what is this in your life? I want us to ask, why does this happen? Why? How is it? How is it that Paul can so freely pour his life out, and yet it's hard for us sometimes to go throughout a week without feeling like we can't, you know, we're free without fighting for our own sense of rights and our, our own, these things we have for us. Why? How is it that he can give and we can't? And I think the answer is, I think the answer is, is we're not nearly as free as Paul claims we can be in Jesus Christ. We say we're free, but we're still largely enslaved, shackled to our reputation and our sense of identity on this earth. Who we are as people is, are still largely connected to what's happening down here. Whereas to become more like Paul, 
to become more like God would be to, that we anchor all of our identity in him. But if, if and when we shackle ourselves to something here, right, some external thing besides God. By the way, the word for that in the Bible is called idolatry. That's idolatry. Is to anchor your identity in anything other than God. And when we do that, when we do that, then we need to protect it. And now we have rights and there needs to be justice and all of these things. Versus if our constant knowledge is we have been saved and redeemed by the resurrected Lord, that the Holy Spirit full of power and love is in us to comfort, guide, convict, and shepherd us. And that God has for us at the end of time a great, great eternity waiting for us. If that is what fuels us, then we can, we can act like a grandma to the world. What does it matter? What does it matter if I'm cheated? What does it matter if someone did a sin against me? I can forgive. I, this is what Paul says, right? Look at verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessing. You'd say, what does he gain out of this? What he gains is the joy of allowing the gospel to be alive in him. Like this gospel that saved him, this good news that saved him, is now working through him. And he says, the joy in that. I want to I want to read 24 through 27 but I don't we're not going to spend too much time on it. So I'm going to read it and then sort of summarize it because I there is a one more thought I want to get to. Let's look at 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I find myself should be disqualified. Now, if I were going to try to summarize that, I would say it's something like this. Paul lives his life seriously before the Lord. He's serious about his life in Christ. That would be my second question to you. Are you serious about your life in Christ? You know, there's sort of the cheap decisionism of Christianity that sometimes has sort of plagued America, which is say the prayer, say the name of Jesus, and you're going to go to heaven. That does not make for serious Christians. Are you serious for the Lord? In such a way that you find places in your life where you forfeit your freedoms, right? You behave as one who loves others. You forego things that you know are yours so that they might grow and be loved. And you do that without a grave sense of sacrifice because what you're gaining is more than what you're giving. Are 
Are you serious? Okay, I'm going to end with this question or this thought. It's an observation. As I've been wrestling through the ninth chapter, where Paul's been laying his own life out as an example. So, hey, wasn't I an apostle? Didn't I have the right for certain sorts of honors? Shouldn't you have offered me and cared for me? But I, I, I worked myself and I fed myself. Uh, am I not free? Don't I have a right to certain things that I forego for the sake of me? And all of that, and him giving his example of his life for us, I had in my mind, why is he not using Jesus as the example? Jesus is a better example. Jesus is a legitimately better example. I'm not saying anything about Paul. Jesus makes for a better sermon. He makes for a better lesson, so I would think. I mean, and I, obviously, it's not as though Paul is not interested in Jesus. <laughs> the man loves Jesus. And in fact, in this letter, he's been talking about the death and resurrection of Christ, and he's going to be talking about the death and resurrection of Christ. This letter takes a grand view of Jesus Christ. But in this moment, with these people, when it gets down to the nuts and bolts of it, you know what he gives his example of? Himself. Well, I find that, I found that interesting. Why not use Jesus? I mean, Paul has the right to say, hey, I who was free became a servant. Well, Jesus has the right to say, I who was God became a man and humbled myself to the role of a servant. By the way, those are Paul's words from Philippians. Right, he who did not, the speaking of Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but humbled himself and became a servant and took on the likeness of a man. What's bigger? I was free and I lived as though I was slave or I was God and I did not consider equality with God something to be forfeited, but out of love for you, I gave it up and took on the likeness of a person. Why doesn't he use Jesus? This is my thought. I think it is because the church in Corinth knows Paul. Because they know him. Like there's a way, just like in Sunday school, the answer to every question could be Jesus, but at some point Jesus, Jesus is not here. And Jesus very often does not feel real to us. Some of us say, yeah, but he was God, so he wasn't really tempted. There's something ethereal about the man Jesus, I think in many, many people, but there's not something ethereal about you and your walk with the Lord. There is just this profound enigma that the work of Jesus Christ is far more consequential. And right, My hope is not in Paul, it's in the work of Christ. But my witness among my people might actually be more meaningful to point them to Christ. Or another way said, if what Jesus did and said is true, then it ought to be true in your life. It ought to play out true. Otherwise, how real can it be? Those are the questions I think we should ask is, are there areas in our life where we're sort of holding on to things we know to be true, but we're holding them on that in ways that puff us up rather than 
rather than subordinating them and putting them in the right place in our life so that the Lord can allow us to build others up? That's the first question. What's your tendency in life, right? Are you living like a technical Christian? That amounts to nothing. It's a resounding gong and a clinging cymbal, okay? The second question is, is are you serious about your faith? Because here's the reality is, for most people, they're gonna need to see Christ through you. No matter, even though he's always the better answer, they know you. That's inescapable to those who bear witness of Jesus Christ. If you close your eyes, I'll lead some prayer. And I want to invite, uh, I want this to serve as an invitation to all of us, whether we're out of the faith, on the way into the faith, or deep in. If you're here this morning and you've never responded to the Lord, to say, you are my Lord. Lord, rearrange all of what I know. Like, if you're sitting here going, knowledge and me are not working. I just want to, I want to welcome you into the faith that survives and thrives on Jesus Christ. Allow him to be Lord and to order things. Say to the Lord, Lord, forgive me. Forgive me the things I've done wrong and help me to forgive others. Help me to let these things go. And it is not as though that news is, is good news only for the person making the decision. We all need this. For those of us who are in the faith, just to come back to the Lord and say, Lord, may you reorder in me in such a way that I build up and not puff up. May you reorder in me in a way that my life witnesses to you. When people see my life, they say, that's a good example, but Jesus is a better example. How much more? Lord, we ask you this in Jesus' name. Amen.